1: Welcome to RSG On The Road. Uh, We're here at the Maui Invitational and uh, I got a special guest here, one of our our big time sponsors. Uh, I got Dr. Philip Bowman uh, from the Bowman Medical Group. How you doing, doc? I'm doing great. All right, all right. Hey, this this episode is brought brought to you by Bowman Medical Group of Beverly Hills, California, where integrative healthcare specialists are committed to improve the quality of lives of individuals and families and communities by providing high quality, accessible, compassionate mental health care services. Contact Bowman Medical Group of Beverly Hills, California for positive, courteous, and efficient medical, me- mental health care services. We want to thank you again, brother, for being uh, our sponsor for this uh, uh, big event. It's been a great opportunity. And uh, I didn't want to get too far into this without uh, talking to you and um, uh, hearing a little bit for you. Can you at least talk to our audience a little bit about um, Uh, Bowman Medical Group and uh, what you're doing. I want to make sure people understand uh, the quality of care. I've had a chance to see your facility um, and just what you're doing for folks uh, uh, in Southern California.
0: Yeah, I I can do that. I mean, the primary thing in in medicine and even more importantly in mental health care is uh, access. So having access to care is important. I mean, we see that throughout the country when there are shootings or when there's uh, violence or when Certain things happen, people oftentimes wonder, when and how do people see mental health specialists? So when I first started in private practice, I was a solo practitioner, means I worked by myself. And I recognize that's part of the problem because as much as I had training and knowledge and qualifications, I can only do so much as one individual. So that was really the inspiration behind developing a group. So bringing specialists, multidisciplinary specialists together therapists, psychiatrists, psychologists, and it's really a team approach and looking at ways to coordinate and collaborate so that access is better. So when people come, come to us, we can take care of children, adults, uh, families, uh, we can do uh, cha- uh, geriatrics. So so the idea is being as comprehensive as possible.
1: I mean, when I think about your journey, I mean, you were in uh, uh, full disclosure, I had a chance to, to uh, play Uh, basketball with Dr. Bowman as a youngster. So I had a chance to watch him early on and uh, elite basketball player uh, in uh, high school. And um, I mean, one of the incredible stories I'll share quickly is that uh, you came back to play with our team football uh, your senior year, moved back from Champaign. Uh, First game, uh, you uh, uh, crack your patella, you're out. And then you come back, most incredible comeback, you come back in January, I believe, or February, to actually play. And I remember playing against the name of Flint Northern, uh, Demetrius Caleb, or somebody, they played a triangle and two on you. You still had 30. So you were, you were, I mean, a well rounded athlete um, who was also a good student, who probably could have gone to any very strong academic institution, but you kind of took a different path that got you to Illinois as part of that team. Can you talk a little bit about that journey on how you ended up on this team, given that this is the 30th anniversary of that team making this run to the Final Four? How did you end up on that squad?
0: So, uh, yeah, I can, I can share my experience with you. And, I, and one thing I would have to say up front, it was not a master plan. You know, there was, <laughs> there was no blueprint uh, that was in place. So it, it happened in a way that's just interesting. And I think, it, to me, it's just why we always want to try to be resilient. We always want to work toward goals. We always want to try to get the best out of ourselves because you never know. Um, there's uncertainty out there, but there's also opportunities. Um, so what, what primarily happened uh, after that injury, football, even though basketball and football were competed for my first love, uh, I was good at both quarterback and then a point guard in basketball, I really thought and saw myself playing college football. Um, after that injury, uh, uh, Coach Lorai, who was the football coach at the time, asked me, did I want to go on any recruiting trips for college football? And I remember, easy answer. I said, no. <laughs> and that was because you know, after you have major surgery and your, you know, your kneecap is dislocated, you, you kind of have second thoughts about that. So basketball became uh, more of a focus. And, and in part, I was able to make it back for my uh, senior year. Okay, that, that was imperative. And the, the orthopedic surgeon told me, uh, Devon, that it's gonna be 12 months. And that injury occurred in early September. And so he did an excellent job. I give him credit, Dr. Peterson, Um, at repairing, and we my knee. That allowed me to work hard doing rehab and be able to come out. Now, I wasn't the same player in the sense of the speed, the quickness, some of the versatility, being able to jump, but I still loved the game, and it it actually, in a way, helped round out my game. So when I came back, um, I ended up becoming a really smarter player, anticipating more, Recognizing opportunities, and the other thing that I, I really recognize is, um, I'm a decent outside shooter. I have more of a balanced game. I can shoot and I can penetrate. But when you're a little slower, uh, sometimes you need to look for that open jump shot. So, <laughs> I, and uh, I, I knocked down a lot of jump shots. But one of the things I I, I I now in retrospect remember is a lot of those those jump shots I made, Vaughn, were only worth two points.
1: Yes. So,
0: they were deep. That's right. All right, some deep shots are only worth two points. So at that point, when I was evaluated, what am I going to do next? I had some, uh, some academic opportunities. I could have gone to Brown, Morehouse, Rice. Um, then there's some other schools I potentially could have gone to on scholarships. But I thought the game was changing. Mm. And the next year, my freshman year, those same shots I was hitting in high school were now worth three points. Mm okay not two points and i actually average 25 points a game at pioneer that's right last 19 games that's right i was thinking if those were worth three points <laughs> 35 <laughs> so i looked at that so that was one factor i thought the game was changing and now with my my outside shot being a strong um, part of my game let me see how that might play out two i really thought academically I did really well my senior year, but I still wasn't, I think, ready yet for, you know, success academically. I was ready to go and be a good college student, but at that point, I thought a lot more about academics after that injury, and I really thought I wanted to get a better academic foundation. So junior college or community colleges are one of the best places that you can get an academic foundation that can prepare you for transitioning into any four-year school. Mm -hmm that was another reason a third reason my family moved to champaign my dad as a professor left university of michigan he then took a job at university of illinois so when i went to parkland college in champaign i actually went with my family my brothers right. in school and my, my my parents moved there too so first couple of years i actually lived at home right. i went to junior college at, at parkland and guy was able to play on a good team the team uh the year before made it to the national championship game and actually won it. They were national champions in college. So my freshman year, I got a chance to play with a lot of returning guys who were really good players. And then my second year, this is when it all changed. Um, A lot of guys graduated and then I was able to, to get a lot of playing time and ended up just like, just lighting it up from the, from from the three point uh, land. And I led the nation in three point shooting uh, a lot of people when i tell them this i made 153s not shoot wow. 150 i made 153s and wow. i shot 48% from three wow. not 38% but i shot 48% so at that point uh, junior college all american first team our team made it to the national uh, junior college championship game again we were runner up and I, at that point, just, you know, started to look at, at, at opportunities for scholarships and Lou Henson called. Man. And uh, he said, well, you know, he talks slow, kind of Oklahoma. So, you know, we want you to consider Illinois. And the reason why, and this is timing, Illinois finished dead last in three-point shooting in the Big Ten the year before. Wow. Okay, so that's the, that's the caveat. Kendall Gill, Nick Anderson, Steve Bardo, Larry Smith, great players, but they just couldn't shoot it. (laughs) (laughs) At that point, no, they were sophomores. That's right. Going into their junior year, uh, that was the glue. That's what really made it happen. So, uh, Coach Ensign had brought me in for an official visit. And, they, you know, they, I, I was in town, so it wasn't really that big of a deal. Did did my host um, meeting and decided that because engineering college, I also wanted to just add, I, I got straight A's. Mm-hmm. So and also solidified that I wanted to be a doctor. So my decision in part to go to Illinois was, one, they, they needed some help from the outside shooting. And, two, I decided I wanted to be a doctor. And that meant I did not mind if I went to a school that I didn't get a lot of playing time. Hmm. Even if I went to Illinois and I sit and behind academic, not academic, but, uh, uh McDonald's all Americans, uh, Mr. Basketball players, I mean, they had three or four McDonald's all americans yeah. three or four, Mr. Basketball's on that team. I was okay with that. And if I got to play, that would be great, too. So I kind of went in with, with an open open mind, but certainly didn't didn't know
1: what to expect. You listen to uh, RSG on the road You're here uh, in uh, Maui. Um, I'm here with uh, Dr. Philip Bowman, who uh, is a member of that uh, 89 uh, uh, Illinois uh, team that ran to the Final Four. I had a chance to uh, catch him a couple times along the way, and uh, we're going to spend a little bit of time talking about that team. But uh, we're also catching in on his his you know um, a lot of what we talk about in RSG is this this uh, navigation that people have to go through when they're student athletes and um, and how they balance that perspective and how much they have to take control of it so I'm glad you're kind of talking about that aspect of it because that's something that we often talk about on our shows um, and that people don't see behind the scenes I, I spend a lot of time with big-time college athletes and people assume that um, they're only prioritizing their athletics but there's a lot of them who do exactly what you're you're doing and folks on TV that they see that they don't think are still doing it today. So I'm, I'm glad you're sharing that. You come in as a transfer, there's some dynamics to the culture in the team. Like what made that team work? Uh, I know talking to uh, Coach Underwood today, um, he really talks about the culture of the program. DNA goes back to your team. I mean, y'all had a lot, they had, Illinois had a lot of great teams before y'all came in. You and I know that. I mean, they were always on the map, but there was something about your team was more, Y'all took us to the next level in terms of rock stardom. I mean, in terms of following, in terms of that whole flying the line, eye energy, how did y'all gel as a culture, as a team? How did that come together? Um, you know, how did that, how do you, you know, y'all think it's thieves right now? How, how, how did that all come together when y'all all came in the room together?
0: So, you know, once again, we, Devon, this, this, is, this is a team with uh, Nick Anderson. Yes. Kenny Battle. Kendall Gill, Lowell Hamilton, which is, who is, a, you know, McDonald's All-American, um, Steve Barnum. So this this is a team, uh, Larry Smith, who not even talked about as much with that team, was That's right. basketball his senior year. And, and so we had uh, these, these great players. The the piece that I think fell in place, um, one, we had a lot of talent. I mean, there's just no question about it. I mean, we sacked those guys up against any team, I think historically that played at Illinois even if you look at great teams, even the UNLV team. I mean, we had, you know, pound for pound, those would be interesting matchups. But the thing that made our team, I think, unique and gave us a little edge is when we looked around the room, Marcus Liberty was on that team. He's 6'7", 6'8", Hamilton, 6'8", Nick Anderson, 6'6", six, six. Steve Bardo, 6'6", Ken O'Gill, 6'4", with long arms. Larry Smith, six five, six four. We were like, "Who? What position is That's right. going to play?" Okay, so how are you going to put all these guys on the same court and not know who's a power forward, who's the center, who's a point guard, who's a shooting guard? That's
1: what gave us our edge because we looked around the room and said, "Hey, we don't need a position." Yeah, you were the first one of the first positionless basketball teams. I remember y'all were switching everything. People talk about today, but you guys were playing positionless basketball back then. So and
0: it was it was because of that dynamic. I think that gave us an edge because we decided we're not worried about roles. We're not worried about being limited or confined by ideology. Let's just play. So defense, we would switch everything. We would track. We would do everything instinctually. Um, again, if a team you know made 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 uh, if we made a free throw, we would press. Um, and coach would never tell us to do any of this. Coach Jensen was over there just raising his hand, and I think he was lip-syncing. He was just lip-syncing because for the for the TV, you know, to make it look like he's coaching. Uh, I love Lou, but honestly, that team, we were doing it a lot on our own. And on offense, man, if they shot the ball and we got the rebound, it didn't matter who got the rebound. We just pushed it up court. And that's why we could beat teams and we would sprint. And next thing you know, we crossed midcourt, uh, alley-oops, dunks, and everybody could jump. Everybody had arms. Everybody could finish. Um, so then, we, you know, who do you key on? Who do you double team? You know, what do you... So we just found that teams did not have an answer for that. And they didn't have the kind of player. So if they had a center who was seven feet trying to guard a 6'8 guy, that was a problem. Or if they had... 5'11 or 6'2 point guard trying to guard Kendall Gill or Steve Bardell who are 6'5 and 6'6. That was a problem. So
1: we created big time mismatches and matchup problems for other teams. I, I tell you, so um, so I, I want to get a little bit into the run. So uh I had a chance to catch y'all twice. I caught you at Wisconsin. Uh yes. y'all played against my guy Trent, who I still talk to. He worked in the development at Trent UW. Jackson. Yeah. yeah, and they had they had uh, uh Rashad Griffin. That team, I remember coming there, they, it's like they it was like the Boston Guard, they turned the heat up on y'all. It was so hot in that old building. Y'all went in there, uh, had a tough loss to them. Um, I think Kendall got hurt sometime in that run. And then That's I had correct. to ask y'all y'all played the end of the season game uh against Michigan. Uh so y'all had some and where y'all ran Michigan and Glenn Rice them out the gym. That one was I couldn't believe how y'all ran them out the gym. L- that regular season was clicking for y'all, but y'all had some snags um, and y'all were going in a tournament. As much as you can recall that run in that regular season, what was it like to go into Iowa City? I mean, I think y'all went into Iowa City. I mean, what was it like when y'all were going in there trying to challenge? Big Ten was tough back then.
0: So, yeah, certainly college basketball was even different generally uh, because you had so many upperclassmen who were great players, juniors and seniors, that were playing, you know, including our team. We were primarily juniors. Um, but we still, you know, had face teams like that. Um, people were more developed um, basketball players in um, and, and that particular conference. Um, we had a great team and still finished second. Yeah, uh, to Indiana. Indiana finished first with J. L. Lennon Jones, um, and Michigan with five NBA players finished fifth, I think, yeah. in Big Ten. So you know, if you look at the depth in the conference, it was it was crazy. The, the the things that happened, we were 17-0 or 18-0. We were ranked number one in the country at that point. Okay, this is prior to the Big Ten, about 17-0. But in the game that we won to become 17-0 and, and be number uh, one in the country, Kendall Gill broke a bone in his foot.
1: Yeah.
0: So that was uh, a great victory, and it was great to be ranked number one, but he was going to miss the next eight games or so. So then we had to find a way to replace him. And, you know, we had a team that that was a really important integral, really important piece. So we had a few tough losses. Um, Wisconsin was one of those real losses. We didn't lose any games at home. We lost a tough game, B.J. Armstrong, Roy Marble at Iowa City. But because we were 17-0 and 0 and went into the Big Ten season, ranked number one in the country, we became a target. Yes. Every Big Ten team then – Wanted to knock us, down, knock us off. Yeah. We weren't just a good team anymore. We were the team to beat. Mm. So, you know, Purdue, and they had good teams. Minnesota with Willie Burton and that's right. Melvin Newburn. It's, right. it's, it's hard to win up there, you know, in, the, in a farm, in one far, of those uh, uh, old-style arenas. I know. You got to walk up. <laughs> yeah, you got to walk up the course elevated. The course um, elevated. Yeah, those, those old field houses. <laughs> right, so so it was a real hostile environment. Teams brought their A game against us every single time, but we still managed to win a lot of games. The two teams that we beat twice in the Big Ten, right, to, to, which really help understand. Then you know our team being really good, was we beat Indiana twice. Indiana only had two losses in the Big Ten. Imagine winning every Big Ten game, yep.
1: but two. So Bobby Knight was mad. He, I know he was throwing that he, chair at you.
0: Yeah, because we ended up getting a number one seed in the tournament. So it's wow. we got a number one seed and Bobby Knight and said, How could they get a number one seed and we won the Big Ten? That's right, that's right. And he was upset. We won the big ten, they got a number one seed because we beat them twice. That's right. Losses. And the other team we beat twice was Michigan. That's right. We destroyed them at home and then unfortunately we played them on senior day. They had the mock right. down on the court with the flowers. I felt bad for him because we, we, we beat him, sent him home, beat him by 20. So yes. at this point, we went into the number one seed, into the tournament, knowing we beat Indiana twice, you know, we beat Michigan twice. Who's going to stop us? That's right. Right, so very confident. Kenan was back. We were starting to click. Beat McNeese State. We beat Ball State and in Indianapolis. Then we went to, to Minnesota, and we had a couple tough games. Yes. Litmus test. We played Louisville with Purvis Ellison. That's right, never nervous. Yep, yep. And uh, we also had to play a Sherman Douglas, Derek Coleman team. Billy Owens. Billy Owens. Smith. Stevie Thompson. T- Stevie Thompson, yep. Stevie Thompson. We had to beat that Syracuse team. Yeah. And that was in Minneapolis in the, in the regionals, and we won both those games. So at that point, you know, we, we are feeling as if we're going to win the national championship. Um, but something was happening though, and it did get attention. Okay, there's this team that we beat twice, that finished fifth in the Big Ten. Their coach got fired, you know. So Bill Frieder got fired by uh, by Bo. Bo Shembackler. Because because he had you know uh, Steve had said uh, I mean Bill Frieder said he was gonna go uh, coach at Arizona State, so he got fired. So then Steve Fisher filled in, and you almost feel like that's gonna go downhill from there. Because yeah, that was, that was right before the tournament, it was right two, after y'all beat them. Right after you beat them, yeah. So at that point, that's, I'm, I'm thinking their season's over. But it was the opposite. They got loose. It was, it was almost like having a substitute teacher. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> they got loose. And they were playing free. And, and Glenn got hot. Glenn Rice got hot. And Still got records. They started blowing people out. And they're like, okay, this, is a, this looks like a different team. And they just went um, through the field, went in, you know, four games or so in a row. So when we looked at the Final Four, we're like, okay, Seton Hall, you know, we got them. Uh, I think it's Duke. Like, yeah, they're pretty good, but, man, they can't match up against us. Against us, we got them. Then it was us. And then the other team was Michigan. And we are like, they're playing actually really well right now. They're probably, next to us, the two hottest teams in the tournament but we beat them twice, so you kind of feel good about that. But you know it's hard to beat good teams three times. Yeah. That, that was that was the sentiment going in there. Like we really didn't want to play Michigan because we were like we already took care of them, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right? And they obviously got the underdog chip on their shoulder. Yep. And they're, and they're hot, so uh, we 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 feel, we feel good about it. Um, and, you know, we didn't play our best game, but that's also giving them credit. Uh, Rumor Robinson, Lloyd Vaught, Terry yeah. Mills, um, they played well. Glenn played very, very well that game. And it still came down to uh, Sean Higgins. That's t- right. At the buzzer, even when we didn't play our best game, for them to advance and go to the National Championship game. So it was a, a classic battle.
1: Oh, my goodness. It so was. Can too- I tell you this, man? That was my biggest regret because, you know, you gave me an invitation to come out to the Final Fours out in Seattle. Seattle. And, I, was, and yeah. I said, I was like, and for the first time, I was like, I need to focus on homework. I yeah. saw that game. I was kicking myself. Yeah. And I knew I was, was going to have to be torn because you were playing. And then yeah. I knew Loy. I knew all those cats from Ann Arbor. So in some ways, it's kind of, you know, you growing up in Ann Arbor, you playing against a, a team. And I was like, I don't know if I could watch this in person. And I regret it not being – that was a great – that was an incredible game going back and forth. But I think it, it felt like it should have been the finals. That's it's, correct. Even That's though the finals that was a great finals, that felt like that should have been the finals when I, when I watched it.
0: So when you listen to, you know, all of the commentators or Dick Vitale, people at the time, they, they, they said the two best teams in the tournament, are Michigan and Illinois, at that point, the final yeah. four. Yeah. So we were, unfortunately, in the same bracket because that would have been, you know, awesome finals. I, I agree. Um, yeah. You know, although Seton Hall and Michigan, you know, that was, that was a great game. But it was two heavyweights. Yeah. And, you know, we were both throwing blows. And it, was, uh, it, it almost felt like the, if the game went another 30 seconds, it could have gone the other way. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's – uh, and, and we, we were disappointed, obviously. Um, you know, we really believed we were the best. We still – we get together. So we're still good friends. And if we ever talk about that, like Kendall Gill would tell you, he's never watched that game again. He's wow. never. He's, uh, Steve Bartle has never watched. I never watched it. So never watched. I'm ever watching that game was courtside or in, wow. in the game. So um, basically, no one's you know we're that still you know uh, kind of hurt by it because we really felt we well we know because we beat them twice that we should have won that game, but we went to the finals and as as you know, competitors, we actually still rooted for Michigan to win because we were rooting for the Bay 10.
1: Yeah. Well, I tell you, this, you listen to RSD on the road. I'm here with Dr. Philip Bowman. Uh, this is brought to you by Bowman Medical Group of Cali- uh, Cali- uh, Beverly Hills, California. Uh, one of our key sponsors. It's good to ha- have you here. One, the next thing I want to talk to you about um, is really after that. You know, you, what you describe it, listeners are listening to this, and they're thinking about the excitement. All right, and and you played it had a great run, but then you have to make a transition. And you talked about it initially, you know, you went there, you kind of got yourself set, but then you're in the moment, you're playing, you're seeing all this amazing stuff, you see all this. The transition from, you know, being the limelight, being a student athlete, to the noise is gone, the fans are gone, how do you make that transition? And then also, how do people you know have made that transition? Because I think it's often uh, something I talk to a lot of student, ex-student athletes about, that transition from from playing sports to figuring out the second half of your life, uh, where most people are done with this at a very young age. How did you manage that transition? Because um, I know you, you had a focus, you know, and how have you seen others manage that transition?
0: It's a great question. So, you know, you are doing something as a student athlete that requires uh, just not only passion, but a ton of motivation, a ton of effort um you know certainly have to be driven when that ends it is a contrast in terms of who am i uh i had an identity because it seemed super clear uh it was i was getting a lot of positive reinforcement and then when the cheering stops it's sort of how i refer to it what does that mean and where does that leave me and so there's an element uh of an identity transformation. Um, and identity is huge for human beings. People need to know to an extent, be in touch with who they are. So, cause that can guide you. That can give you ideas. that can help you get up in the morning and, and, and take action and and, and develop planning. So without that identity, um, a lot of guys, unfortunately for a while, they feel lost. Part of their identity they believe will continue, but that would mean playing professional basketball. Okay. So that means that you're going to play in the NBA or you're gonna play overseas. And and some of the guys on my team did and, and some guys didn't. And if they don't, then it can really be a, a tough transition. What helped me is I didn't have a goal to play NBA basketball. So mm-hmm. if I really get behind the scenes and say, well, what was the difference for me? I didn't have that goal. Marcus Liberty had that goal. Mm-hmm. That's why he asked me to pass him the ball all the time. <laughs> By twenty points, so <laughs> he, he was like, "Man, I gotta, I gotta get drafted, right?" So I'm like, "Hey, man, I gotta go to organic chemistry." I'm like, I gotta go to "Business class." So I'm doing both, and a lot of the guys primarily had that 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 aspiration and that goal, which is fine, because I was able to find a way, which isn't easy, to balance that and focus on my academics and really have some goals then that were not basketball related related. That helped my identity. So I could still say, okay, I'm no longer a basketball player at that level anymore, which is a loss. You do mm-hmm. quite grieve that. And, and you have to kind of mourn that. But then at the, on the other side, I'm like, Oh, I'm a, I'm a good student. I got all A's at Parkland. I have all A's and B's at Illinois. Mm-hmm. What I want to do with that. And uh, my, my next step, my goal is to see if I could uh, attend medical school. And then I started the, uh, the next step with that, which you know, I had to do a few things like take the MCAT, which is an entrance exam, to, to get into medical school. I needed a little bit more time to do that, and I, instead of taking some time off, I, I pursued a master's degree in public health and uh, did that at University of Michigan and then went out to medical school. But I think that's one of the issues is identity and how you transition from being a student athlete and having goals, and maybe goals that didn't get met, and are you a failure? You know, are you depressed? Mm -hmm. Are you just disappointed, Mm -hmm. You're discouraged, because now you have to find another catalyst to really simulate all of that drive and all that effort? The other thing is you're used to having uh, milestones for development. Yes. You know, I want to play on varsity in 10th grade, or I want to, you know, be All-State, or I want to play D1, or, you know, I want to be a starter on my college team, or I want to be All-Comp you have all these milestones, all these goals, and then those things developmentally stop. So you don't really feel like you have those milestones. Another thing is support. A lot of people supporting you. A lot of people giving you feedback that's encouraging you. A lot of people who um, are are there when things are going well. And it's not so much that you stop playing basketball, it's the fact that all the people who supported you playing basketball disappear. That's right. That's right. That's right. I mean, it's like Houdini. (laughs) They're gone. gone. They're gone. Go. So now, not only are you not doing what you are passionate about, but you look around and the people that are supporting you during that process, we're no longer there anymore. So that feels kind of eerie. Mm -hmm. You have to develop new social networks. You have to develop new relationships. But based on what? You know, and that takes time. People don't understand that that's uh, not something that happens overnight. So um, you have to give these guys time to really figure it out without being judged
1: uh, or scrutinized harshly. Um, well, one of the things exa- I want to – I mean, you're hitting into a really good point. So uh, you were at Michigan, and then we went to, uh, together to watch the Final Four, which was the Fab Five's first year. Um, I don't know if either one of us knew that we were watching something that would be this crazy phenomenon. And now I'm here talking to Coach uh, K um, about his freshman class, uh, which is now the norm. He's the one who never uh, early on didn't do the one and done. He was still – I think Corey McGetty might have been the first person off his team that left early. Um, But now he's right in the middle of it. Now, you know, he has a team that with Zion Williamson and – and some of these guys who are just incredible athletes. When you think about that development from, you know, late adolescence to early adulthood, and these folks are in this kind of limelight, you know, where, I mean, this is rock stardom level. Like we saw the Fab Five and you saw, you know, and they were doing it. And I said the difference between these two teams is they were doing it when there was also this larger cultural dynamic going on that they were also responding to and mirroring. The Black Sox, um what was happening in la with the ride like there was a cultural contact happening that they were dealing with as young people that some of these folks who are one and dones or young folks aren't dealing with some of these same cultural dynamics you know what happens with somebody going from that late adolescence to early adulthood what kind of things do you need to put by, around them to help them make this kind of transition
0: i mean some of it it, it has to do with uh having this this uh idea that you are part of a collective yeah okay and i think that's important for adolescents um you aren't an individual uh in the sense that you are maturing and you are developing but you don't know actually who you are yet yes okay and so even though you're dealing with a lot of pressure and you're dealing with adults actually who have expectations of you Mm -hmm. and one of the things that we have to remember is their personalities, their identities, their judgment in terms of decision-making, their brain, basically, I can say this as a psychiatrist, isn't fully developed. That's right. So it means that they're going to require a lot of kind of guidance, and there can be room for mistakes or bad decisions, and I think, unfortunately, adolescents, they try to posture as if they have it figured out. Mm. And they then oftentimes try to look at the things that they've decided or the ideas that they have that they believe are positive. They look for support and look for people to give them positive feedback about that because they want to feel secure. Mm-hmm. Things that they believe they have figured out. In the past, that would run into uh, uh, a bit of a, a, a contradiction when you when you talk to older older people. They'll say, hey, that's a good idea, but that's not going to actually work out that way. And then Younger folks should have opportunities to make adjustments, and or they'd run into someone who says, "Hey, I I I remember being your age, and this is what worked for me, and you know maybe you can take that into consideration." So you got a chance to be around older people and make adjustments. Now, unfortunately, the best way to get positive feedback, the best way for someone to tell you that you are have it figured out because you think you have it figured out, is go on Facebook <laughs> or go on Instagram or do some social media thing and it insulates and creates this bubble for adolescents to believe they have a bit more of a master plan than they do. And the, the only reason I bring that up is once they start running into some discrepancies and start recognizing that they don't quite have it figured out, they get anxious mm. and they start to second guess themselves and they start to feel more of a imposed pressure to be something that they're not. And I think that's one of the things I've noticed that's different. And you get a lot more anxiety. And, and clinically, I see it even with kids who don't play basketball or football or sports, going from high school to college even, even a normal college transition, uh, the prevalence rates of anxiety has gone up tremendously. Um, but I think the piece in there that's uh, a byproduct, byproduct of that is, is just the, the social media culture versus looking up to older players or looking up to people who have done it before and trying to seek guidance from them, which was the traditional way mm-hmm. to have that maturation process go. That's been disrupted. That yes. doesn't really happen that much anymore.
1: That's right. And it's accelerating. And particularly some of these folks who are, you know, they're gonna be having real life decisions, they're gonna be handling a lot of money. Um, you know, um, and, you know, I think because of AAU and some other things, they've been kind of putting some of these, uh, Social situations and had to navigate some things at an early age that maybe it's kind of helping uh, um helping them prepare for that 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 space they're going to be in. But you know you have folks who are going from you know sometimes situations where you know their families aren't doing a lot to like they got to make decisions about a lot of resource at an age where most people don't have to make those type of decisions um, about things. And that leaves them open for a lot of other vulnerabilities. And so that's, that's one of the things that I've been noticing
0: that's true so with with the fab five is a good example so when i was a first year graduate student uh, uh and actually then i tutored for the athletic department and in my second year i was uh uh given the role as academic uh, advisor i was a grad student academic advisor for the fab five so i worked very closely i was coordinating our study table and um so i worked with jalen and chris and Yuan and and basically and uh, talk to them on a daily basis. So what mm-hmm. I did notice is that they had each other. So yeah. the thing that can really make a difference is that they really defer to one another about decisions. And it was good. It was a, so they had some group dynamics that allow them to not fall into a, a traps that they potentially could have fallen in as individuals. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they really were looking at, it, at each other as, okay, we're, a team and we respect each other. We also want to have a purpose. Mm-hmm. Um, purpose was a bit more of a, you know, we want to, um, you know, we want to light the world on fire. We want to be different. You know, we want to um, um, almost be be rebels. Mm-hmm. And that's when, you know, you start seeing some of the things that they would do on the court, but they had a bit of a leadership structure though. Yeah. And so not, not who don't know that, but on that team, Jalen was the leader. Yeah. And uh, that's off the court, and you can see it on the court sometimes, too. But that also means that they talked with one another all the time, and they made a lot of good decisions as a group. But at the same time, you know, there were a lot of things coming at them. Yes. The Ed Martin thing, all the other things that were coming at them. So even with those guys being somewhat insulated and using each other for support, which I always witnessed and watched, watched, that was great. It still couldn't totally protect them. In that kind of environment yes. other factors that are going on
1: yes yes well i tell you uh this is great you know we gotta have you back brother um i uh has been a a dream come true to kind of get this going you know i uh, definitely want to thank you and uh the rest of your staff at uh, bowman medical group for uh supporting us here at rsg and you know we got to have you back in the fold to to provide some perspective. And so if you're always willing to do that, we'd love to have you do that. But it's this has definitely been uh, an honor to be, uh, have you part of this journey uh, with us and uh, uh, to be here with us. So I hope Hopefully this has been good for you and for Bowman Medical Group uh, to be part of this partnership with RSG.
0: Absolutely, you know, uh, sentiments are the same on our end and we see RSG doing big things. So we see it growing in the future. And so we're honored to honestly support the work that you're doing, and uh, you know, definitely want to see you guys, you know, blowing up here in the future.
1: Uh, well, we're well on our way. Uh, we want to thank everybody a for following us as RSG on the road. Uh, catch us uh, at Real Sports Guys on all of our platforms. Uh, we're going to be posting a number of videos uh, related to what's happening here in Maui. Um, I got a special gift for you guys and a little question I asked Coach K. So make sure you check that out. Um, I had a chance to. Uh, talk to our Illinois coach here, you know, uh, Brad Underwood, who's going to uh, be uh, bringing together this Illini team, trying to get back to what the 89 team did, um, as well as uh, uh, some conversation I had with Mark Few. So, you know, we're making things happen out here at RSG, and it's because of great people uh, like folks at uh, Bowman Medical Group uh, who have been here helping us out. And so thank you again for being with us here on uh, RSG on the road.
0: Absolutely.